Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello, everybody. It's been a while since the last podcast. I spent Thanksgiving week in the British Virgin Islands. Uh, I rented a, a boat with uh, another family, and we, there was a group of us that were uh, you know, just exploring the islands for a week. I was surprised at how many fans of the Peter Schiff Show podcast I ran into uh, while on these islands. So hopefully they, they made it home and they're able to uh, listen to this podcast as well. I wanted to devote today's podcast predominantly or pretty much exclusively to the end of my defamation lawsuit in Australia. I want to kind of update everybody on what happened and where I'm going to go from here. Although I do want to point out that in my absence, the gold price managed to get above $2,000 and then in the last couple of days, rallied some more. In fact, gold was up about $25 today. And it's up again uh, in the evening, up about another $8, $9. It's almost at $20 and $2,050 per ounce. So I believe their all-time record high was 2080 per ounce. So we're almost there. Uh, But I think what's going to be substantial is once we get above that, I'd say maybe 2100, just to kind of put a little cushion between the, the old record high and the price of gold. I think the price is going to move up dramatically in a short period of time. I mean, gold should already be much higher uh, than, than where it is. I think it's kind of been a gift horse that the price has stayed so low. Although silver, uh, talk about a gift horse, I think the silver uh, price is a much greater deal. I mean, silver has to about double to hit its record high. Gold is only about 1% below its record high. 
but gold stocks, gold stocks have to go up about 50% just to get back to where they were at their peak in 2020. But if you're talking about when gold hit its record in 2011, which is pretty much about the same price it's at right now, maybe a little bit lower back then. The record might have been slightly lower than the current price. For gold stocks to get back to where they were in 2011, uh, the GDX, which is the senior producers, that has to double from here. And the juniors, which, you know, the, the GDXJ, which is an index of junior gold miners, has to almost increase fivefold. Those stocks are down almost 80% in the last 12, 13 years, even though the price of gold has stayed the same. Right? It's still right around the, the, the 2000 high that it hit in, in 2011. And a lot of that is because of the sentiment. There's just so much negative sentiment out there uh, that this Fed inflation fight is going to somehow kill gold. The Fed is just going to be so tough and so resolute in bringing inflation back down to 2% that it's just going to hammer gold. And so nobody wants to buy these mining stocks. The reality is the Fed is not going to win the inflation fight. In fact, it's already lost. Uh, And I think that's going to be more apparent in the months ahead particularly if we get a breakdown in the dollar, which is starting. The dollar index is now down at about 102.5. It continues to weaken. Uh, It was down again today. And I think we're getting very close to a breakdown in the dollar and then a crash in the dollar. And the breakdown in the dollar should, you know, kind of correlate with the breakout in gold because that's what people are doing when they're selling their dollars. They're buying gold. They're getting rid of a fiat currency and they're buying real money. And this is gonna be a huge problem. It's a game changer for the Fed because when the dollar really starts to tank, that's gonna put a lot of upward pressure on consumer prices and interest rates. And ultimately, unemployment. You're gonna see unemployment going up, inflation going up, and interest rates going up all at the same time. I mean, talk about a misery index. Uh, It's going to hit record highs potentially uh, by the 2024 election, which is why I've said it's going to be so difficult uh, for uh, Biden to be reelected in in an economic environment that's going to be, uh, you know, that uh, that, that, uh, drastic. But in the meantime, you know, as I've been saying, buy these... Uh, mining stocks, if you have some risk tolerance, I think they're you know, still ridiculously cheap. I don't know how much longer that's going to stay. At some point, they're just going to have to explode just to catch up to where the price of gold already is, not where the price of gold is expected to go. You know, uh, one of my uh, uh, listeners sent me an email, wanted me to remind everybody because he just figured it out uh, that my gold fund, Uh, is available no load. I mean, there's a load version of the gold fund and there's a no load version. And if you're working with a discount broker, you're at Schwab, you're at Fidelity, any of these firms, yeah, buy the no load version. It's got a different symbol uh, than the load version. Uh, If you're working with a broker, then, you know, you pay the load because that's, you know, the compensation to the broker for helping you figure out, uh, you know, how much of the fund to buy or, you know, what fund to buy. But if you're doing it all yourself, 
uh, if you're deciding that, hey, I want to buy this fund, then you don't need to pay a commission. Certainly don't need to pay a commission to Schwab or Fidelity. They're not doing anything. That's why I've got the no-load version of the gold fund on all these uh, platforms, all these discount brokerage platforms. But if you end up buying the load version, yeah, they're going to charge you the load and put it in their pocket. They, they don't even give it to me. Uh, they keep it. So, you know, there's no reason. Now, if, if you're working with the reps at uh, uh, Alliance Global Partners, uh, then, yeah, and they're helping you, sure, then they're, you know, then you pay a load. That's, you know, that's what these guys are there to do. They, they, they do some work and they get, they get paid on, uh, on commission. But if you're doing it yourself, uh, just, uh, you know, buy the no load. Make sure to read the prospectus. Again, you know, the, uh, the funds are not without risk. I mean, gold stocks are clearly risky. As I just said, the junior gold mining stocks are down 80% from where they were in 2011. That means if you bought these things in 2011 and you're still holding them, you've lost 80%, right, so, or approximately. So, yeah, there's a lot of risk there. But I also think there's a tremendous amount of upside. I think these stocks uh, could 10x, uh, 20x or more in the type of bull market that I anticipate for the price of gold. I mean, people used to rib me uh, because I was predicting $5,000 gold years ago. Well, gold, I believe, is going much higher than 5,000 now. I mean, 10,000, 20,000. I mean, so much more money has been printed. The fiscal uh, predicament is so much uh, graver now than it was back then when I was talking about $5,000 gold. Of course, when I was talking about $5,000 gold, it wasn't that far away. Gold was almost 2,000. So it didn't even have that far to go. Uh, but now my, my price target is substantially higher. So I think there's a lot more uh, money that will be made in, in the mining stocks uh, when gold finally uh, breaks out and investors, the bears on these stocks, throw in the towel. You know, I was watching on CNBC just yesterday, you know, when they were commenting on the markets and they talked about the stock market, they talked about the bond market, the oil market, uh, Bitcoin, but no mention of gold at all. In fact, I didn't even hear them mention it today. Not like I watched like, you know, nonstop. But I watch it occasionally, and they talk about it. I didn't hear anybody mention gold today. Now, maybe somebody did when I wasn't watching. Uh, but I wonder how high it's going to have to go before it you know, grabs anybody's attention. Permanently, personally, rather, I, I prefer a stealth bull market. The fewer people that, that hop on board, the better. You know, let the price move up a lot more uh, before the mainstream investor starts to notice uh, how much the price of gold has gone up and, and how much... Uh, the mining stocks have gone up. I'd rather have them go up before the general public buys. But I want my audience to buy now. I don't want them to buy later and pay higher prices. I'd rather get them on board. And it also means that all of our strategies, if the dollar is going to tank the way I think it's going, then our foreign stocks are going to do very well because they're, you know, they're non-dollar. Uh, plus, a lot of them have exposure to commodities. And I think in a weak dollar environment, which is where we're headed, um, those stocks are going to are going to flourish. But anyway, I'm going to talk a lot more about the markets, the economy uh, on Friday. That's what I'm planning on doing my next podcast. And I know uh, uh, Jerome Powell, I think, is set to speak on Friday as well. We get some GDP numbers that are coming out tomorrow. So there's a lot more economic data that I'm going to get into uh, when I kind of do a normal podcast at the end of the week. So what I want to do now is catch everybody up to uh, what's going on 
uh, with my, my defamation uh, case. And there were a lot of things that I kind of wanted to say, and I had to bite my tongue. The lawyers were saying, look, I can't talk about this stuff, uh, but I'm, I'm more free to talk about it now that the case is over. And I, I'm a little bit sad that it ended the way it did, because that's not what I wanted. I wanted my day in court. Now, I still might get it because I'm thinking about bringing another lawsuit against, you know, the same parties, which I I have a right to do and which I probably will do. So I may get my day in court yet, but I didn't get it this time because I agreed to accept the the settlement offer from um, the people I sued, which was 60 Minutes Australia, uh, the age and uh, the producer of the 60-minute broadcast and two of the journalists that basically produced it, Charlotte Grieve and, and Nick McKenzie. And remember, Charlotte Grieve won an award in 2022, like the City Award, a prestigious journalist award that she won for this broadcast, for her work in producing this broadcast that was called Operation Atlantis that was ruled defamatory and 60 Minutes was forced to remove it from its website. It removed it from YouTube. Yet the woman who produced it won an award for excellence in journalism. Now, how can excellent journalism be defamatory? I mean, defamation is one of the worst things that you can do as a journalist. And it's almost impossible to win a defamation lawsuit against the journalist. It has to be really, really bad. And believe me, it couldn't have been worse. This was a piece of trash, uh, what they produced. It was worse than tabloid uh, journalism. And I'm gonna get into that. But she still has this award. Now, I, I don't know why the organization that gave her that award isn't asking for it back. I mean, they, they lose all credibility. They, you know, she won it as excellence the, the best young journalism of the year in Australia for excellence in journalism and what she produced uh, was defamatory. But it was more than just defamatory. And this, the same thing about the Age article, which unfortunately, my first judge that I had, I had two judges. The first one, you know, kind of got promoted <laughs> to a higher court early on. So I had, a, I had a switch and I'm glad because I really liked the second judge much better. Uh, the second judge is the brother of the actor Hugh Jackman. Um, and, you know, but I think he's a very competent, uh, you know, uh, jurist. And I think if I had had this judge for the entirety, that I would have won the defamation lawsuit against the Age article. Because my first judge said that the 60 minute broadcast was defamatory but not the broadcast. Now, my lawyers uh, thought that that was a bad ruling uh, and thought that if I appealed it, uh, that I would probably reverse it because it was defamatory. But I think what's more important than the, the broadcast and the, journal and, the, and the article being defamatory is that they were replete with, with falsehoods, with lies. Uh, and I think that's worse than defamation. You see, what happened was these two journalists, and of course there was another guy involved, uh, Matthew Goldstein from the New York Times got involved. I'm not really sure 
how he, he got involved in it because there's nothing about that in Discovery. I got a lot of stuff in Discovery, but there's a lot of stuff that I didn't get uh, that, uh, it, you know, that was either destroyed uh, intentionally uh, by the reporters, but a lot of stuff I, I didn't get. Uh, like, for example, I didn't get any text messages. I mean, these reporters worked on this story for, you know, three or four months. There's four reporters, two from the New York Times, actually. One of them was at the Bureau in Australia. So you had four reporters working together, and I didn't get any text messages. All I got was a screenshot of one text message from WhatsApp. But when you look at that text message, you can see there's like a little bar on the right, which always happens when there's a string. And that bar was so tiny that it indicated that this was a long string of text messages. Yet I got one screenshot, right? And even that one screenshot was exculpable evidence about the bank. And this is the point I'm trying to make here. So they were leaked information. Um, illegally, somebody in the government, I don't know who, uh, gave them this information on this investigation. I mean, they knew that there was some investigation going on because the J-5 had gotten together and they had announced publicly that they were investigating a bank somewhere in Central America. Now, of course, my bank is in the Caribbean. It wasn't even in Central America. So if they were looking in Central America, maybe they would have looked at Panama or Belize or something like that. They wouldn't have looked in Puerto Rico unless they don't really know geography. But even if they just were looking around uh, in, uh, in, in um, the Caribbean, you got a lot of banks, you know, in the Bahamas, uh, in the Cayman Islands, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, hundreds and hundreds of banks. So there would have been no way for them to have figured out that my bank in Puerto Rico was the bank that they were investigating in Central America. And in fact, when I did get discovery, one of the things that I noticed was there was no uh, effort to figure out who the target of the investigation was. There was no like, okay, who is it? You know, let's make a short list. What banks could it be? Let's try to figure it out. No, there was no conversation among the journalists, no emails, no notes that indicated any attempt to figure out who the target was. They knew. And in fact, they went and interviewed the head of the Australian tax department, the ATO. And when they interviewed him, they kept asking him about this day of action when they went out and they, you know, they were doing this investigation. And Nick McKenzie was asking this guy, who's the target? What can you name your target? He probably asked them maybe half a dozen times. I've got the whole thing, you know, on uh, the whole video. And the head of the ATO, who was shown on the 60 Minutes, he kept telling Nick McKenzie, look, Nick, it's too early. I can't tell you. We're just starting the investigation. It's too early to disclose who the target is. So that guy was being, was being honest. He was doing the right thing. When you are investigating somebody for criminal activity, you don't announce who you're investigating because what if, what if you don't find anything? You don't want to unfairly taint somebody. You see, in court, you are innocent and too proven guilty, but not in public. If the public knows that somebody is being investigated for a crime, they don't have to give them the benefit of the doubt. They can just say, well, where there's smoke, there's fire. And, and so that's why uh, criminal investigations are confidential. You only announce the investigation if you find enough evidence to file charges. Now, of course, 
filing charges doesn't mean guilty. It just means there's enough evidence to go to a jury and try to persuade them that the person is guilty. Now, the jury might not believe you, but you at least have to have enough evidence to bring the charges. And that's when a ethical reporter would pick up the story. So if my bank was actually charged with tax evasion or money laundering as a result of this investigation, at that point, it would have been fair game for Nick McKenzie, Charlotte Grieve, Matt Goods, Goldstein in the New York Times to report about it. Then it's okay. Then it's legitimate news. But if somebody illegally leaks that we're the target of the investigation, they're not supposed to publicize that. I mean, the government official wasn't supposed to leak it, but the reporters aren't supposed to publicize it. And this guy, Nick McKenzie, despite being repeatedly told by the, the, the head of the ATO not to, uh, that it's too early, he announced it anyway. But the other thing was he was lying to this guy because when he was trying to get the head of the ATO to tell him what bank was the target, he already knew. He knew for months. I could tell that from the emails. So why didn't he tell the head of the ATO that he knew that it was my bank that was the target? Why did he keep asking him, can you tell me what the target was? Because he was looking for an official confirmation because he got an anonymous source, right? Somebody who wouldn't go on the record because they got the information illegally. So he knew the target, but he didn't want to tell the head of the Australian tax office that he knew the target because then he might've said, well, gee, how'd you know that? So he lied. He pretended he didn't know it, trying to get it. He couldn't get it. They would, the guy wouldn't tell him. And then he broadcast it anyway. Now, of course, you know, they tried to pretend that they figured it out, but again, they didn't figure it out. There's no evidence of any attempt to figure it out. They, they knew it from the very first email that I saw between these reporters. They already knew that my bank was the target. In fact, they knew my bank was the target before I did. Because when the IRS agents came to my house in January of 2020, and of course, these reporters knew the exact day the IRS visited my house, right? But when they came to my house, they lied to me. Maybe they told the truth, to these reporters, but they lied to me. You know, they told me that the bank was not the target, that I was not the target. They said that they were investigating customers of my bank, that they suspected some of my bank's customers. Now, it was a little suspicious to me because it was a grand jury investigation in Sacramento, and I didn't even have any U.S. customers, so I didn't know, you know, how we had a nexus to Sacramento, California. Uh, you know, but I gave the government the benefit of the doubt that they were being honest when, when they weren't. Maybe they were hoping that I would slip up and I would spill the beans, but there were no beans to spill because the bank did everything by the book. Uh, and so even if they had been honest with me, uh, you know, it wouldn't have made a difference. But they did say, look, you know, you never know where investigations go as we're investigating um, these customers you know, if we find something that your bank did wrong, if we find that you actually help people uh, launder money or evade taxes, then you could become a target, right? That's what they said. You're not a target now, but it's possible that if we find information that incriminates, you know, then you could be a target. But of course, they never found that information. All they found was a bank that went above and beyond uh, when it came to compliance with 
anti-money laundering and, and things like that. But the point is, so these uh, uh, reporters were leaked this information by, by, by somebody in the government, whether it was uh, from the IRS or the ATO, I don't know, because they're still protecting the source, right? They don't want to give up this criminal source, right? A government official who broke the law, right? They're not, they don't want to, you know, oh, we're ethics, right? We, we're, we're, we're journalists, right? We don't want to reveal our sources. They're not journalists. They're a bunch of liars. They're frauds, uh, you know, looking at what they did uh, with the story. So they were leaked that my bank was being investigated. And so they determined on their own that, that I was guilty, that my bank was guilty. Even though no charges had been filed, they decided, these investigative journalists, before they did an investigation, decided that my bank was guilty. Then they actually did an investigation. But here is the problem, and here is what I learned from the documents that I got from them in, 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 the, uh, in, in, the, in the trial or in the, the, the lawsuit. All of the information that their investigation uncovered refuted their conclusion that they had made, that the bank was guilty. Everybody they talked to, they talked to referral agents. They talked to former bank employees. They talked to former bank customers. A lot of customers, a lot of ex-employees, like four or five, couple of referral agents. They got the same story from everybody. Everybody went on and on about how strict the bank's compliance was, how long it took to get an account, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, how rigorous it was, how every transaction was scrutinized. I mean, people were saying, I was amazed. I'd never seen anything like it. I've never encountered a bank that had this much compliance. This is their own uh, information. Of course, I had prepared, and I, I'm going to put all this stuff on a website. I, I, I have the URL. It's ninefraud.com. I mean, don't go there now because I haven't posted anything yet, but I'm going to be documenting this case. I'm going to be putting up all my evidence that I never got a chance to introduce because, you know, we didn't have the final the final uh, trial, um, but their own evidence, their own evidence proved that their conclusion was wrong, right? And instead of saying, you know, we got it wrong, this guy, this bank is innocent, this bank has excellent compliance, instead of admitting that, they decided to lie about what their investigation uncovered. So instead of using the investigation and, and, and abiding by what they found. They decided to lie about what they found and misrepresent it to the public through the 60 Minutes broadcast and the Age article. Because you could read uh, the article and, and look at all this stuff that they wrote. And I know, first of all, one of the things they wrote in that article, and the article is still online, so you can see it. People have been saying, well, how do I see the broadcast? Well, the broadcast is gone. They had to take that down. They didn't have to take the article down, at least not yet. I'm probably going to sue them again on the article, not for defamation, because I, 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 you know, I already lost the defamation case against the article, but I won against the age because the age, you know, you know, was responsible for the 60 Minutes broadcast and the age employed the reporters that defamed me on that broadcast. But I might sue them 
at a minimum for injurious falsehood because that article is replete with lies. You know, one of them was that my bank's customer list read like a who's who of organized criminals. There were no organized criminals that had accounts at my bank, not even one, let alone a who's who of organized criminals. You know, the one guy that they, that they, that they, that they mentioned was a criminal was this guy, Simon Akatiel. I've talked about him. Uh, and, 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 and Nick McKenzie repeatedly talked about that guy on 60 Minutes. And by the way, earlier this morning, I uploaded the unedited interview that 60 Minutes did with me in my home uh, in September of 2020. I've, I've talked about it. I, I've, I was demanding that they release that for years. They refused to give it to me. The only reason I have it is because they were compelled to turn it over through discovery. So had I not sued them and spent, you know, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars. Um, by the way, I do get that money back. Uh, you know, I got, I got my costs, indemnity costs, as well as my judgment. I'll, I'm going to get into that. But I finally got the, the interview. And so I encourage everybody to watch the actual interview. And, and then you can see the real circumstances. They, they, they edited it. They took little snippets of it. And they tried to make me look bad. They tried to make me look like I had something to hide. Uh, they really focused on the fact that I got out of my chair and left. You watch that interview. It's almost an hour. Most people who have watched it and commented on it can't believe that I didn't take off my, white, my mic sooner. How polite I was to this guy. You know, it took a long time to get me uh, to get up and leave, uh, but they wanted to portray it as if I had something to hide, as if I didn't want to ask, answer questions. And of course, what they don't tell you is that the whole interview was an ambush. They, they told me they wanted to interview me about gold and inflation and the economy. And in fact, in the beginning of this interview that I put up, I put up the little piece where Nick McKenzie is there. And it's before we start the interview. And I asked Nick McKenzie, hey, you know, what's this going to be about? And I'm not sure. And so Nick McKenzie lies to me again. And he says, well, I'm just going to start off talking about, you know, the economy and, you know, what you think, uh, how it affects your views and how it affects Australia. And then we're going to take it from there. Right. <laughs> he doesn't want to tell me about the bank. And then he makes up this excuse. He says, well, you know, I, I got to go to the bathroom. I got I got to work on my hair. Right. Can I can I leave? Because he doesn't want me finding out even right before the interview what the real purpose is. He wanted to surprise me by it, which is which is what he did. He surprised me with all these false accusations. And one of them was that this this organized crime family, you know, some Irish uh, drug syndicate or something was using my bank. I mean, that wasn't true. I mean, there was nothing in discovery. They didn't. There was no talk about organized criminals. There was not a mention of it. I mean, that. Th when we were actually during one of the, the um, judgments I won, I won seven consecutive judgments over two years. It's got to be a record. In fact, I actually won an eighth, which I'm going to get into a little bit later. But I won like seven judgments in a row against these guys because their whole case was BS from start to, be, to end. But all they were trying to do was delay the inevitable, run up my legal bills, delay uh, you know, having to you know, be proven wrong, and, and they're still denying they were wrong. Uh, but um, 
in, in, the, in, this, in this interview, he's accusing, you know, saying we've got all these organized criminals. During the trial, or during one of the hearings, they were asked to name one. They couldn't even name one because they said I was helping hundreds of Australians evade their taxes. And we said, who? Name them. <laughs> Nobody has been named. In fact, the entire uh, investigation of my bank, not only did it yield no results, right? It was the biggest tax evasion, money laundering investigation in the history of the world. Five countries were involved in investigating one tiny bank and they found nothing. Not only did they find that the bank did nothing wrong, they couldn't find a single customer who did anything wrong, right? Uh, and, and so, but McKenzie's alleging, you know, all these criminals. And one of the criminals is this guy, Simon Akatil, who I've talked about. And I actually had to pay a company, you know, about 80 grand to study this guy's account and another guy's account to show that the bank did nothing wrong. I'm going to put that whole study up on that uh, nine fraud. I mean, I'm, there's going to be a lot of documents that I'm going to be able to put up online that fully evidence that, 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 that this fraud. I mean, the, the journalist community should really be up in arms. It's amazing to me that there's like no coverage given to this. Down in Australia, you've got one of their most declarated reporters. In fact, two days after I won a defamation judgment against this guy, he was honored with an award. Two days later, a journalism award. And the same company that honored him with this award is now setting up uh, a, a grant, an annual grant for $10,000 for investigative journalism in this guy's name. And he, he's a complete liar. I mean, at least with, with what, what happened with me. I can't believe that he, he completely lied and distorted the truth with respect to what he did in my case, but that he's totally honest with everybody else. I mean, if he did this with me, I'm sure this is pretty much how the guy operates. He's, he, he's not ethical. Uh, it's, he, he is just uh, trying to uh, pursue a political agenda and he distorts and misrepresents the truth in order to advance that agenda. But getting back to this guy, Simon Ankatiel, he knew that Simon Ankatiel had an account at my bank. He only knew that because somebody illegally leaked him the information. And he kept saying, you know, how could this criminal uh, have an account at your bank? And he, and he was implying or saying that the guy had an account at the bank like right now that he was using. Well, it turns out he had an account at the bank, but it wasn't a personal account, it was a corporate account. And he was like the, 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 the main guy on the corporate account. But by the time we had the interview, that account had been closed for a couple of years. And when we opened the account originally, the guy had no criminal record. So when he's saying, how did you let this organized criminal into your bank? Well, when he came into our bank, he had no criminal record. He was totally legit. But here's the other thing he didn't tell you. The account that he had, was not in the name of the company that committed the fraud. Right? That company is called Pluvis Payroll. Akatil actually applied for a bank account for Pluvis Payroll at my bank, and the bank turned it down. Then he tried to wire money from one of his other bank accounts for Pluvis Payroll into the corporate account he had at my bank. And my bank rejected that wire. In fact, I think we rejected four wires in a row. He tried four times to send money 
from Pluba's payroll, which was the company that was doing the $100 million fraud. He tried to send money to my bank. We rejected every attempt. And then, because he kept doing this, we shut down his other account. So my bank closed one of his accounts and refused to open the Pluba's payroll account. And it turns out when the Australian authorities finally figured out this scam, and there was about a half a dozen people, accomplices of his, that all got arrested. But it turned out that Pluba's payroll was laundering their stolen money through about 100 different banks. That's how many banks were willing to open up a Pluba's payroll account, 100 of them. My bank could have been the only bank in the world that turned them down. Yet here's this guy, McKenzie, trying to say, I've got this bad bank because we're helping a Pluba's payroll steal all this money. We're the only bank that, that, that tried to prevent it. It's these other 100 banks that didn't get, you know, weren't the topic of a hit piece or an article or a broadcast. They were the banks uh, that were opening up all those accounts, but somehow they're okay. Nobody, nobody suspected them. But some of the worst parts uh, were actually in uh, the, the, um, the age article. Like one, one in particular, and I forget the guy's name. And again, I'm, I'm gonna, this is all going to be documented. And nine, actually, after I won my defamation case, you know, they're watching my tweets. I'm sure they're going to watch this video, right? They, they look at everything that I do now down there in Australia. They have their lawyers, uh, you know, watching me. But they're, you know, they're following me on Twitter. And I mentioned on Twitter that the discovery in my defamation lawsuit um, uncovered that the reporters lied, that their own evidence contradicted what they were saying. They got so afraid of it. And also, I told them that I was going to publish the unedited interview with me, and I've got more on it, more interviews that I'm able to publish, but so far I've just published that one. Um, and they were so afraid that I was going to do this because I hadn't done anything yet. This is last week on Thanksgiving. They kind of ruined my Thanksgiving dinner because they went to court for an emergency injunction after they already lost the defamation. And they went to court, and I have the transcript of this. I'm going to put this up on my online, too. There's two, actually, they had to go twice. The first time they went, they weren't even prepared, so they had to come back and do it again. So two nights. But they went to court, and they tried to get an injunction to prevent me from publicizing the, the stuff I got from Discovery, including um, the interview that I just posted this morning. They didn't want me to post that unedited video. So they tried to get a judge to order me not to do it. And when they, when they were making this argument, they basically At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. 
Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The public shouldn't be able to see confidential emails. You know, why not? I mean, why can't they see the inner workings? The reason is because it's fake news, right? They don't want you to know. It's like, you know, the WWE doesn't want the audience to know that the fights aren't real, except that's just wrestling. This is supposed to be news. But 60 Minutes Australia, The Age, aren't really reporting news. It's fiction. They just don't want you to know the real news. They didn't want people to see the actual interview that took place between me and Nick McKenzie. They just want the public to see the little bits of it that they decided the public should see in the context that they wanted to present it. The same thing with all the other facts. I mean, here's one example, and I, I, I forget the guy's name, and I, I have, again, I have all this evidence, but one person in particular was quoted in the Age article. Now, She's talking to this person. Uh, this is Charlotte Grieve. And she asked the guy, well, what, what was it like when you opened up your account? Like, did they ask you any questions? And he's like, oh, my God. They asked me so many questions. Right? And, you know, he said, you know, you wouldn't normally expect a Caribbean bank to ask so many questions. But he goes, they just went, you know, they on and on and on. He said, you know, if I was a regulator and you asked me did this bank did a, do a good job, and I said, absolutely. They, you know, they really were cautious and they were, you know, they put me through the ringer. He says all this stuff. Now, it turns out that this guy was uh, arrested for something in another country. And it was like he was he, he was never charged. And so nothing ever happened. But there was some obscure newspaper article that they were able to find. And the guy said, yeah, you know. Uh, yeah, I did get arrested, but it was all a big misunderstanding. I was never charged. And they said, well, did the bank ask you about that? And he said, well, no, there's no way they would have known. I mean, how could they have possibly known this? He goes, I, I was in Canada. I was a Canadian. 
that the thing was in you know another country. It was for it, there's he said there's no way any bank could have possibly known that I was uh, arrested for this. Uh, and you know, and, but anyway, when she quoted this guy in the Age article, she took out a context where he said something like. Well, you know, it's not like they said, um, let me see your resume and have you ever worked. So they, they used some of that and they ignored all the stuff that he said about how rigorous our compliance was. And they tried to present this guy as if he was um, validating that we had light compliance. Right. That was what they were trying to say. We had light compliance uh, and everybody they talked to, everybody said they ha- we had strict compliance. In fact, that you know, the one guy that they, that they showed, this guy Ogilvy, who was a former IT guy, he actually ended up doing an affidavit uh, saying that he was upset at the way 60 Minutes uh, uh, represented him because he said he never had any criticism of me and he had no criticism of the bank's compliance and he told them that he had no knowledge of our accounts or compliance. And in fact, he was misquoted uh, in that same article. They said that uh, McKenzie said that when he showed up or, 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 or Ogilvy said that he found a bunch, he found a bank that had high risk clients and he never told them that. Uh, and he, in fact, he told them the opposite. He said he had no knowledge about the clients. He did have a lot of criticism of the bank, but it had to do with the way uh, Mark Anderson and uh, the vice president of the bank we're, we're managing it. He just didn't think they had uh, the right people skills. He, he, you know, he, he had obviously had a grudge against them. Uh, he had, and so he was criticizing their management style. He didn't have any criticism of money laundering or tax evasion or compliance. But 60 Minutes and The Age tried to misrepresent him as if he was some kind of whistleblower uh, on the bank. When every single bank former bank uh, customer they spoke with uh, confirmed how strict our compliance was. In fact, they went undercover. I have the notes of these conversations. They went undercover with referral agents and they posed as uh, people who were trying to help their clients launder money or more, more, more specifically evade taxes. They would say, hey, I've got these clients. They don't want to pay taxes. You know, what do you recommend? Are there any banks that you would recommend, right? Nobody recommended my bank, none of them, until they prodded them. They would, they got, one, one referral agent said, well, here's a bank that, you know, and, and they said, look, we really don't like to do this. We don't, we're really not doing anything to help people avoid taxes. But, you know, they would, they would press them. Well, can you give me a bank? Where can we go? And so somebody would say, well, here's a bank in Cyprus. And they would, oh, you got anything else? And come up with another bank. And then they would say, well, what about Puerto Rico? Do you know any banks in Puerto Rico? And then the guy would say, well, you know, there is one, Euro-Pacific Bank, right? But, you know, they got it. they're pretty strict. I mean, it's, you know, you're, you're going to have a hard time getting an account there. I mean, this is what they were being told. They tried to portray it as if we had all these referral agents that were out there touting the bank for uh, tax avoidance and privacy. When they had documents and they had, uh, in their own notes, the employees of the bank that they talked to told them that specifically, if any referral agents tried to market the bank as um, a place to hide money or avoid taxes, that we would stop doing business with those referral agents. 
One of the bank employees that they talked to, former, these are the former employees, told the reporters if anybody they talked to indicated that their goal was tax avoidance, that was the end of the conversation, and they were not going to get an account. You could not get an account at my bank if you gave any indication that the purpose of the account was tax avoidance. I mean, which isn't even illegal. Tax evasion is illegal. But if anybody told us that they're trying to lower their taxes, we're like, okay, we're not going to take you. Right? That couldn't be a reason. And they knew this. Now, you know, I had all these documents. I was prepared if I went to uh, trial. I had all these affidavits from bank customers, bank employees, that were going to refute all their allegations to show how strong our compliance was. You know, how many accounts we turned down, how difficult it was to get an account. How, how, how we ha I had one customer that you know, had done an affidavit, and this guy said that, look, he really liked the bank, but because it took us so long to approve his transactions, because he was investing in deals, and he said that it took us so long to vet his transactions that he was missing out on some opportunities. So he ended up having to close his account because our compliance was too strict. And he moved his account to Barclays. And he said once he got to Barclays, they didn't question a single transaction. So all the transactions that we spent so much time scrutinizing, when he moved his account to Barclays, they just, no problem. They all just went through without anybody even batting an eye. And so I had all these examples of customers uh, talking about you know, how we put them through the ringer like no bank has ever done. Because that's how strict, that's the irony. You probably couldn't find a bank that had stricter compliance. They knew that just from our reviews on Trustpilot. All the bad reviews were about all the compliance and all the headaches. Right? We were doing everything we could to be as squeaky clean as possible because I didn't want to lose any of our correspondent banking relationships. I didn't want to lose the deal we got with American Express. I mean, everybody is hypersensitive to money laundering and getting fined. You know, Westpac in Australia got a $2 billion fine because its correspondents were doing stuff um, and that they weren't checking. And 60 Minutes and the Australian, you know, the Australian reporters knew that we had a correspondent account with uh, Westpac, and none of the transactions that got Westpac in trouble happened at my bank. All the transactions from my bank were no problem because we did such a good job of vetting uh, all these transactions, uh, and they should have known that. So the bottom line is they knew when they were accusing my bank of facilitating money laundering tax evasion, they knew that we didn't do it. They were deliberately misquoting every single person that they interviewed. That's why I'm thinking about malicious uh, falsehood, uh, because you know, in order to sue sue for malicious falsehood, the it's not just that the statements have to be false; they have to be done with malice. So if they just got it wrong by mistake, all right, well they just got it wrong. But it's not a mistake when you know it's wrong, when you've got piles of evidence when you're misquoting people, when you're making up quotes that were never said and attributing to people and distorting what they said so you're actually reporting the opposite of what they told you, that's clearly malicious. And there is a lot of damage that I, that I suffered 
unfortunately, you know, my, my, my judgment was so small uh, that I, it, it's barely scratched the surface of what I lost. So I got a judgment uh, for 550000 Australian dollars. And they were ordered to pay my costs on what you call an indemnity basis, which means I get like 95% of my costs as opposed to maybe 70% of my costs or whatever, which would be on an ordinary basis. But I'm still going to have to pick up some of the tab, even though I won. Initially, you know, I had to put money up in case I lost because it's loser pay in Australia. And I actually, you know, I, I think that's a, that's a good system. I wish we had that system in the United States. But because I was a foreigner, uh, they made me put up money. But what was very frustrating is I offered to put up my Perth Mint account. I have gold and silver at the Perth Mint. I said, look, I'll pledge that. And the Perth Mint set up a special account where they, they basically, you know, ring-fenced a bunch of gold and silver, and that was going to be collateral in case I lost. And then they refused to accept that, just to make it more difficult for me. They wanted me to have to send new money, which I ended up doing. And I eventually got all that back, but it took like a year and a half. I had to tie it up, you know, while they told one lie after another. I mean, that's the biggest problem. First, at the very beginning, they claimed that they never defamed me. That was their position for about a year. Well, we never defamed you. Then, when I tried to get a hearing just on defamation, just to find out you know, whether they defame you or not, they opposed that. And they told the judge, well, you know, what's the odds that you're not going to find at least some of these imputations were carried, which was an admission that they lied. I mean, they basically admitted that they denied uh, defaming me, even though they knew they did, right? But, you know, so what? They lie about everything. So their position initially was that we never defamed Mr. Schiff. Then as soon as the judge found uh, defamation, and I initially said that there were 10 defamatory imputations in the broadcast. And the judge said, okay, seven of them were carried. They said the other three, and I think she was wrong. I think all 10 were carried, but I won seven out of 10, right? As soon as that happened, their position switched from we never accused him of doing that to, oh, we can prove it. We've got all the evidence to prove that he did all these seven things. Of course, that was a lie. They had no evidence. Every time they filed a motion and we had a hearing, they threw it out because it was hopeless. They, they, we never, they never even got to put on a defense because they had no evidence even capable of winning. Right? That's how bad it was. They had nothing. They accused me of committing crimes without a shred of evidence. But not only did they make these accusations without a shred of evidence that I was guilty, all the evidence they had suggested that I was innocent if it didn't prove that I was innocent. And of course, more proof of the fact that I was innocent was I was never charged. This investigation now uh, is almost four years ago that the biggest investigation in the history of the world started. And you know that they were super hoping to find something, right? If they could have found the slightest uh, infraction that they might have normally just overlooked if somebody else did it, they probably held me to a, a standard that no other bank has been held to. And even with that, even with the bar so low, they still couldn't find a single thing uh, that anybody at my bank did wrong. But these 60 Minutes reporters, they knew it. They had all this information that they uncovered and they ignored 
their own evidence. They didn't just ignore it. They lied about it. They fabricated evidence that, that, uh, that, that didn't exist. So um, the reason I ended up settling it, right, is they offered me this $550,000 plus costs, right? And there is a, like a, a legal cap on defamation, and it's really low in Australia. That's the problem. It's been adjusted for inflation, but right now it's about 460000 Australian dollars. That's the most that a judge is supposed to award you. That's the maximum, right? So you, you might get less than that, but that's the most you're supposed to be able to get um, for just general damage to your reputation. Uh, I think, you know, I have at least $25 million of real damages, if not more, but, you know, it's hard to necessarily say that those damages were the result of the defamation, even though they were. But a lot of it was just the result of the fact that they, you know, they, 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 they mentioned that my bank was being investigated, you know. But it was obviously much worse that they, that they claimed that I was guilty. That certainly made it worse, as opposed to that I was just under investigation because they convicted me of crimes that I was never even charged with because they couldn't even find any evidence to charge me, let alone convict me. But what the lawyers told me was that since they offered me about $100,000 more than I was probably going to get if I stuck it out and actually had the trial, which I was scheduled for late January, but it may have been postponed. And who knows how much, you know, how much longer I would have had to wait. But what I was told was that if I didn't take this offer and then I won later, but I won less than that amount, they could say, well, you know, this was all unnecessary. We offered to pay him more than what you just awarded him. Therefore, we want Schiff to pay all of our legal costs between the settlement offer and this verdict. And I would have been stuck with my own costs because they would have said, hey, we're not going to pay Schiff's costs because that was all a waste because we offered to give him more money than you just awarded him you know, months ago. And so all these costs were unnecessary. So I kind of felt that I was in a bit of a box, uh, you know, and, you know, they were basically saying, hey, we surrender, you win. We're going to give you more than the maximum. Uh, and we're going to pay all your costs on an indemnity basis. And if I would have turned that down, I would have then seemed unreasonable. And I've been the only reasonable one over the past couple of years. And so I decided to go ahead and, and, and take that uh, win and then maybe move on to another lawsuit. Because one of the things that I, I didn't do is I didn't release them from any other claims. I basically settled that defamation case, but I left open the opportunity to sue for other uh, torts that relate to the exact same thing, which is what we're looking at now and bringing another lawsuit. Because so far, nobody cares. There's like no publicity uh, in Australia. I mean, a couple of tiny articles, and that's it. And these are two of their you know, best-known journalists, and I caught them red-handed absolutely fabricating a story. I mean, this is the worst possible thing that journalists can do. I mean, this is fake news at, at its fakest. I mean, this is basically the poster uh, child for what fake news is. And what's worse is, you know, there was a conspiracy going on between government and the journalists uh, involved. This is, you know, fascist uh, type of uh, activity when you have uh, collusion between uh, the government and the media. 
especially when you're targeting somebody for their political beliefs, because the only evidence that they offered, and the judge kept saying, well, that does, that's no evidence. The only evidence they had, despite claiming they had all this evidence, the only evidence they offered during the, 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 the process was my, my politics. Hey, the guy doesn't like taxes. He doesn't like regulations, so he must be guilty. That was it. That was all they had. You know, and of course, Judge Jackman said, well, that, that's nothing. You can't, you can't claim that that proves anything just because he doesn't like taxes. Who doesn't like taxes? Who likes paying taxes? You know, I don't like regulations. Yeah, you know, I'm a free market guy. See, that was the problem. These guys are a bunch of socialists, right? They, they like big government, and they don't like anybody who opposes it, and that was me. And so they wanted to take me down, but I also think they were trying to use me uh, as, a, a, as an example because they were trying to promote uh, more legislation uh, to require uh, uh, lawyers and accountants and realtors and other non-banks to be subjected to all sorts of anti-money laundering, mainly uh, for tax avoidance. Uh, they, they're trying to track, crack down on tax evasion in Australia or ta you know, so they can have more money for their socialist programs. But they tried to create a need for this by showing how all these legitimate uh, uh, people were working with my bank and my bank was doing all this bad stuff. When the truth was my bank wasn't doing any bad stuff. And so because accountants and lawyers in Australia worked with my bank didn't mean anything because my bank wasn't doing anything wrong. But none of these reporters seem to care. It seems like they, they, they all uh, want to, uh, you know, protect each other. Like they don't want to uh, turn on one of their own. But, you know, if you are a journalist, a real journalist, and a journalist does something like this, you have a duty to condemn that. Because I believe that um, um, uh, Mackenzie and uh, Charlotte Grieve are a disgrace to their profession. And if I was a journalist, I would not want to protect them. I would want to reprimand them. I would want to call them out just because I respected my occupation. And they perverted it. They, they lied to their audience. And then they didn't want me to expose the lies. They go to court and they try to prevent me from showing the truth to their audience that they lied to. And you're not getting anybody condemning them. The only person that has covered this, really, is uh, from the Daily, Daily Wire. He has uh, a great piece, Luke Roziak, and you should read that in the Daily Wire. This is the second article he's written about this travesty. And, of course, it goes way beyond what happened in Australia because it goes now to the IRS and what happened uh, with OSIF and the, you know, the Puerto Rican regulators. But I, I, I'm not even getting into this now. I'm just... On this uh, you know, podcast, I just want to stay focused on the Australian uh, media company. But you know, because all this information that, that should have been kept quiet, right? had nobody leaked this investigation, or had the, the reporters in Australia and at the New York Times, had they just kept quiet, had they waited for the investigation to conclude, and since it, it concluded without finding any evidence that the bank did anything wrong, the bank you know, would have spent, I think I spent at the bank close to a million dollars complying with the, all the subpoenas. I mean, they requested 
hundreds of thousands of pages of documents, which are difficult and expensive. I had to hire people to help me uh, comply with all the stuff that um, the, the, the government was asking for. But at the end of the day, we would have been fine. The bank would have been fine. It would be thriving today. I'd be making a ton of money now at this bank. Right? I mean, lots of money would be coming into a 100% reserve bank. I, had my, my, I was going to be the only bank in Puerto Rico who could issue MasterCards. All, I, mean, I, I mean, American Express. I had that deal with them. I was going to make a ton of money on that. Um, you know, we were going to be able to, if we wanted to, we could have started paying interest because we would have had a Fed account. Uh, we had no loans. I could have started earning, you know, 5% interest on my dollars at the Fed. I could have paid, you know, I, I, I would have been making a ton of money right now at that bank. Nothing bad would have happened to it if the journalists would have just allowed the investigation to happen. Instead, they exposed the investigation and destroyed the bank completely. Even though it's innocent, it gets completely destroyed. Um, that perverts the whole, the whole process. I mean, what good is that? Okay, yes, Mr. Schiff, your bank did nothing wrong, but because there, we leaked the investigation, you've lost the entire bank. You've lost tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars for nothing because some idiot politicians decided that I was probably uh, helping people evade taxes just because my father was a tax protester or just because I've said that I don't like high taxes or I don't like regulations. Like, I'm not dumb enough. I'm not going to go out there and talk about how I don't write, like regulations and then not abide by them. I mean, I'm not going to put a target on my back. You know, a, when you are being critical of government, like I have been my entire career, including in the securities industry. I've always criticized SEC. I've crit criticized a FINRA. But I make sure that I, that, I, that I dot every I and cross every T. I go by the book because I know I'm going to be a target. And so I'm, I, I, I take extra precautions, right? My bank went above and beyond when it came to uh, complying with regulations that I routinely criticized. And I advocated that they should be repealed, but I didn't uh, uh, disobey them. And 60 Minutes, these reporters, including at the New York Times, they all knew it. I, I mean, I thought that when I got to uh, the trial, they were going to be surprised by all this evidence. I was like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, this, they're going to really be shocked when they see all my rebuttal evidence and I have all these bank customers, and I have these accounts, I have everybody talking about how great the compliance was. Little did I knew, no, they already knew that. They were already told that by every single person they talked to, without exception. They didn't have one example. They had no, they had no examples of criminals using my bank. Go watch that, that, that video interview uh, with Nick McKenzie, and look at all these things he's accusing me of. He had no evidence of any of it. Uh, the only thing that he knew was my bank was being investigated. Everything else was a lie. And again, remember, I was lied to in the beginning because I didn't even know my bank was the target. I didn't find out until June 30th of 2022 uh, when an, the IRS agent, Jim Lee, the chief uh, criminal uh, you know, guy at the IRS, when he did the press conference and he publicly stated for the first time that my bank was the target of Operation Atlantis, that's when I found out. You know, the media knew about it long before I did. In fact, the media knew my bank was going to be shut down before I did, before my attorney did. 
This whole thing was orchestrated for the media. In fact, I think they shut my bank down just to try to help uh, uh, Nine and, and McKenzie and Grieve win my defamation suit, and they lost it anyway. Because up until June uh, 30th of 2022, they didn't even have any proof that my bank was being investigated. There was nothing in their uh, in this discovery that showed that. I mean, they just assumed it, but there was no evidence of how they found out. So they couldn't even prove that my bank was being investigated, let alone that it was guilty, until June of 2022 when the IRS handed them a present, which was to publicly disclose for the first time uh, that my bank was being investigated, which they shouldn't have done because the investigation was over and they found nothing. You don't come out and tell everybody about a failed investigation that came up empty and unfairly taint the reputations of the people you investigated. The only possible reason uh, for that was to help these reporters win a suit they ended up losing anyway. But I'm the one that had to pay because I lost the entire bank. And of course, my poor customers, uh, in another two days, it will be 17 months, 17 months since the Puerto Rican government took over my bank and nobody has gotten a nickel. You know, in the, the 16 months following these stories that came out, there was a run on the bank. About $200 million was withdrawn from my bank, 75% of the deposits. We sent it all back. No other bank could have done that because you know, they would have, a bank would have failed if, 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 if the depositors wanted 75% of the money back. They don't have it. It's tied up in loans. It's in underwater treasuries or underwater mortgages or whatever. But my bank kept everything in cash. So the people asked for their money, we sent it back. But then once the government took over, the, the remaining 25%, there's like 75, $80 million left. No one's gotten a nickel. The only person who's making money, taking money out of the bank is the receiver who OSIF appointed, right? That's the government regulator who had no banking experience whatsoever. Ne never even worked as a teller, right? Had no idea what banks do really. And he was put in charge of my bank, but you know, it's a honeypot for him because he's making, I don't know, 15, $20,000 a month. I don't even see the invoices. Uh, but I mean, the guy's sitting on a gravy train here. Uh, so uh, who knows when my customers are ever going to get their money. Uh, but all the money is there. Uh, so they're also innocent victims of this. A lot of employees lost their jobs. You know, just so these reporters, right, you know, they won an award, they get ratings, uh, they make stuff up. And I wish we had more reporters that were willing uh, to out these guys. You know, anybody who's watching this, if I, have, I know I have fans out in Australia. You guys should make some noise down under. You know, try to organize some protests. You know, maybe get some picket signs out in front of Nine's headquarters. You know, how about a boycott of 60 Minutes Australia or The Age until these guys are fired? Uh, because they're still standing behind their journalists. That was what, that's their official uh, uh, position. In fact, they're now saying again they disagree with the judge. They're saying we're sorry if the judge found meaning that we never intended. So now they're back to saying they never said anything wrong. First, they, that's what they said initially. They said, oh, I never accused Mr. Schiff of doing anything wrong. Then once the judge said you did, oh, of course, we can prove that he did all this bad stuff. And now they're back to their original lie that they never accused me of doing anything wrong. When if you read the article and you watch the broadcast, that's exactly what they did, despite all the evidence that they had that contradicted those accusations. So 
there, there's no remorse. They've never apologized to me. Gee, we're sorry, Mr. Schiff. We're sorry that we got this wrong. We're sorry that you lost your bank. You know, we made a mistake. You know, we, we falsely accuse you. No, they're still pretending that they got the story right and, and that the judge got it wrong. This is how low these guys are. So we need the public in Australia to call them out. I mean, maybe we can even arrange a boycott of advertisers. I'm not sure who the big advertisers are on Channel 9, uh, but maybe we could boycott their products. I mean, there has to be some kind of public backlash because the media is not going to do it. Again, they're all protecting their own, right? And that's probably because maybe more of them are guilty. Maybe that's why other journalists don't want to criticize McKenzie or Grieve for lying because they lie too. And since they live in glass houses, they don't want to throw stones. But that's an indictment of the entire journalist profession down in Australia. Maybe they're all as bad as these guys. I can't believe it. You know, I mean, they got to be the worst of them. Uh, but I think uh, you know, everybody else needs to stand up for the integrity of journalism and call out the bad actors. You know, the, one of the things that the uh, 60 Minutes lawyer said in court, and, and I, you're going to see that when I, when I publish the, um, the transcript, they said, well, Mr. Schiff is trying to damage the reputations of these uh, 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 journalists, and we need to stop him from doing that. He should not be allowed to say things that harm their reputation. I mean, they harmed my reputation. They said that, well, Mr. Schiff, he shouldn't be allowed to hurt their careers. They destroyed my career. They had no qualms about that. When they falsely accused me of money laundering and tax evasion, they didn't give a damn about my banking career, which they destroyed. I probably couldn't even get a job as a teller in a bank right now if anybody did the check on and they saw all these allegations of money laundering and, and, and tax evasion. Uh, so they ruined my career. But now they're trying to get a judge to stop me from ruining their careers. And by the way, how would I ruin their careers? All I'm doing is exposing their own stuff, <laughs> their own interviews, their own emails, their own, you know, their, their, their own documents, and that's going to ruin their career? Maybe because it's a bunch of lies. See, they don't want me ruining their careers by exposing them for the liars that they are. All I'm doing is say, hey, here is the information they had. Here is what they were told. And here is how they portrayed it to their readers or their audience. I mean, if that ruins their careers, I'm not the one that's ruining their careers. They ruined their own careers by lying, by deceiving. That's what they did. They were supposed to be telling the truth and instead, they spread lies. And so if their careers are damaged, it's not my fault. They ruined my banking career. But I personally don't think uh, they should be journalists. If they had any integrity at all, they would have apologized. This is how you know they're a bunch of frauds. Because if they actually got it wrong, which, they're, which they didn't because of their own discovery. I know they didn't get it wrong. They, they deliberately lied. But let's say they, they legitimately thought that I was guilty, and then they found out that I was innocent, and they had prematurely accused me of being guilty, they would apologize. Oh my God, we got it wrong. They would issue a formal retraction. They would do something. No, they are digging in their heels the same way they did for the last two or three years. When I first threatened to sue them, they threatened to, 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 to publish more defamatory uh, articles about me. I mean, Every step of the way, one lie after another. I don't even know why they're not charged with, with perjury. I don't even know why their lawyer isn't disbarred. 
or whatever the equivalent would be because all their tactics, they just tell one lie after another. And of course, perjury is a crime in, in Australia. I mean, how could you just perjure yourself throughout the process? Because how could they pretend they had evidence for two years and then at the end of the day, they have nothing? In fact, they were trying to issue more subpoenas. They were still looking for evidence that they claimed they had. They were trying to get it through subpoenas. They wanted to subpoena the records of the receiver, but there's nothing there. They were, they were grasping for straws. But uh, if they accused me of committing crimes two years ago, they should have had the evidence to support those accusations two years ago when they made them. They shouldn't be still trying to get the evidence, which doesn't exist. But I have all the evidence that does exist that they're the ones that committed crimes, that they're the ones that lied uh, and, 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 and committed perjury. And who knows you know, if they destroyed evidence uh, with respect to um, uh, uh, my discovery. You know, they, they claim, well, a lot of our stuff was just automatically deleted. I mean, but I mean, they knew. I, I, I put them on notice that I was going to sue them the day they did the interview, even before the, they, they, the, the 60 Minutes uh, program made, went on the air, I told them I was going to sue them. And, I, and, I, and so they knew that, you know, before the Age article. So they knew they were on notice that they had to preserve all their records and, and their documents. So their behavior was atrocious from the beginning to end. In fact, I think they were worse. I think their conduct after the defamation, during the trial, was even worse than the defamation itself. Their attempt to cover up their lies was worse than the lies. And so this story needs to be told. So hopefully we'll get some coverage out there in, in Australia. And again, look out for my website. It's not there now, but I'm going to set it up, 9fraud.com. It's either the number 9 or N-I-N-E. I bought both URLs, so they're both going to go to the same website when I, I get a chance to fully document the scope of, of, of this fraud. In the meantime, go and watch the video. I posted it this morning, the 60 Minutes interview. Make sure and, and, and like it. You know, give it a thumbs up. I want to get more people to see it. Comment on it. Uh, just don't say anything too bad about Nick McKenzie because they threatened to sue me, believe it or not. They're threat they've threatened to sue me for comments that other people leave on my video. So if it's too bad, I might have to delete it. Otherwise, these guys are going to try to sue me for defamation based on what the comments that somebody writes. But I mean, I don't know why. I mean, if you call them a liar, I mean, that's what they did. I mean, my lawyer called them liars. So I mean, they're liars. I mean, so that's 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 a true statement as far as as far as I can tell. Um, but you know, comment on it. Uh, but give it, give it a like. You can, you know. By the way, you can like this video as well, uh, and, and share it. You know, I want, I want, I want to get this interview out just to show uh, uh, what I actually said, because a lot of people saw the 60 Minutes broadcast. I want them to know what really went down uh, that day in, in, at my house in Connecticut and how I responded uh, to these unsubstantiated and false accusations. Uh, that were, you know, uh, unfairly, uh, you know, put to me in this ambush uh, interview. Anyway, that's it for now. Again, I'm going to be back on Friday with a normal podcast uh, talking about the markets, talking about, uh, you know, economics and, and everything like that. Uh, so that's it for now. Thanks, everybody.